I'm Alistair Funge, Space Policy and Operations Engineer. I am Jason Aspiotis, Founder and CEO of Finsafi. I'm Michael Maloney, Founder of Satellite Design for Recovery. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. I want you to do a documentary about this area, how people arrived, how they used in situ materials, how the community developed in terms of transport, construction, jobs, and agriculture obviously was one of the first things, growing food, but then other industries came. And then how was the vocation uh, training and education paralleling as, as the area developed? What happened with the education and socially what happened in terms of the participation of women versus men and, and diversity as immigrants came? And they, they can then put going to space in the same perspective because we have that starting point. Wattle and Door buildings here, regular buildings on Mars, the same kind of trajectory. How this area developed will just be a reflection of how communities will develop in space. All right, so we're back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. I'm here with Janine Kutsunen. I've worked very hard on my pronunciation of this Finnish last name, <laughs> which we just went over five minutes ago. Uh, she is the founder of Space Habitats. She's in Australia. And so I'm very curious about this. Thanks for being here. Thank you for asking. You bet. So you got into space from outside the field, much like myself. Your education and experience is in arts and business. So I'm curious what the heck happened and how do you apply those to space? Well, actually, I did start in science, um, but my, my mother had a heart attack and being the eldest of six children, my father just assumed I was going to drop everything, go home, help the family. And, um, and my life has followed that usual female trajectory of like my husband's an engineer and he was building power stations in remote locations all over the planet. Um, so I have a lived experience of living in very remote locations and uh, having that resilience and being able to survive. Um, and and uh, I was inspired because I, I actually just recently did a, a master of art um, and I was going to a, a remote um, arid zone research station and I mm. thought I would do some research on that area and came across a paper which said Central Australia Red Centre Red Planet um, and it, it, it just kicked me off into that trajectory huh. so uh, yeah and I just pulled all of my um, life experiences and education together I can give you a little bit of a background yeah I mean like I've said because of Timo's job I've been living in Africa, Asia, and the Pacific while he built power stations. And that meant me constantly moving, constantly changing careers. So uh, when I met my husband, I was, uh, I had, like I said, I'd started doing a science degree, uh, but I had, uh, because I had, had the family interfere, I ended up taking a job as a customs officer at Sydney Airport, and that's how I met my husband. Um, and then I ended up living in uh, uh, Finland and became a teacher there. Um, and then he got posted to India and then we got posted to Africa for a couple of years. So I was a property manager for the Finnish embassy there. Uh, then we came back to Australia and I was logistics for a company called Schenker, which is a rather large German company. Uh, then I became a purchasing officer and assistance production manager at an electronics company, exporting mostly to China. Um, <laughs> and then I was working for a big bank here. Um, and then 
I actually, uh, and I've got a commerce degree, I've got uh, a Master of Arts, you know, the list goes on. Um, but I have been able to be able to give that overview of how business um, creative uh, pursuits all come together and what will be needed when we go into space. Um, because the one thing that disappointed me, I don't know about yourself, but uh, back in the 60s, I was so excited that we were going to space. And then the Apollo program just faded um, because world politics and world drama sort of overtook it. Uh, I see a greater potential this time because it's a different set of circumstances. We really are driven to go to space now. Uh, we, we have manufacturing processes that we rely on, which environmentally are not sustainable on this planet, but can be moved off planet. Uh, we need resources. Uh, you know, the reality is we are consuming. This is a finite planet. So, uh, uh, having worked with mining, because most of the um, mm -hmm. power stations my husband built were for mining companies, I see the potential for them going off planet um, and and resource mining. Um, yeah. So, I, I it, it was just a, a a lifetime built up of uh, traveling seeing how the planet was going, uh, acquiring all these uh, education qualifications and, and work experiences. Uh, and then the final uh, igniter was uh, going to the Arid Zone Research Station for a creative project, but realizing, okay, they live under underground in Central Australia because of the extreme uh, conditions. And when we go to space, similarly, we will need to live underground. And I actually made contact with Patrice Ray, uh, a geoscientist, who, who said that we, we have this incredible potential to prepare for space living here in Australia because we've got the same soil type and because we already have four communities in Central Australia living underground. So, um, but then when you actually go to those communities, um, the, the, the governance and the logistics of it make it a very difficult proposition. And putting my business hat on, I thought, well, it makes more sense to move that experience actually back to the cities where you can have an innovation hub situation. We've got a lot of old quarries, a lot of uh, open cut mining here in Australia, um, and those sites need rehabilitation. And they're the equivalent of like a crater on the moon or Mars. Um, and they can be used to build habitats to practice for lifestyles up there. And we have a huge demand for aged retirement living uh, housing or cheaper housing. So um, I think uh, I was also driven to get into this space program, realizing that what we can do here on earth is translating to what we will need for space. So there's an, an economic um, parallel. Hmm. Yeah? Okay, so let's let's dig a little more into that. Then this is the question I've got here about what your goal with the with the space habitats organization is. So you, I, you have a big why, I imagine. <laughs> when when we do start traveling, we're going to be able to have to be able to hit the ground running. So the focus of the space industry, quite as a business person, of uh, someone of a business background. I can see the potential for the same problems that the Apollo program struck, hmm. that so much is focused on just getting there and not the why and what we will do when we get there. So um, 
I, I think that uh, we really need to, to sort of focus on why are we going there? We are going because world population problems, uh, resource problems, absolutely. I mean, uh, for instance, um, food production, our soils are being degraded at a horrendous rate. So we, we can't afford to, um, uh, I, I saw a report recently where we've got 80 years of agricultural mm. processing on the soils at the moment. So we really need to start considering moving some of our um, resource requirements and, um, and uh, procurements off planet to try and help this biosphere survive. So you've got a living lab biosphere concept. Let's, let's talk about that and what you need to get started. Well, um, I've actually done it in a two-prong way. It's like think global, act local. So I have, it would have been nice to, <laughs> to follow notes, but I'm ad-libbing it. So um, my step one is I'm working with the, because I'm uh, the treasurer of the women's chapter of the National Space Agency here in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, Space Association in Australia. Uh, and we really want to encourage um, diversity and more women like in engineering and trying to um, help the career dynamics. Because at the moment, the burden of family life still falls back on women and it's restricting their career and their participation in the industry. So um, I've got a local girls' high school. I've bought them a shipping container. Uh, they're going to build a resilience shelter in there. And I said to them, because in space, you're a long way from help. So what do you need in that resilience shelter to survive until such time as help might come to assist you? Because you don't know what extreme events will occur in space, media showers, whatever. Mm. Um, the, the concept was a little bit tricky for the girls and I, we are right next to a national forest. Um, and I just said, okay, well imagine there's a catastrophic fire in this forest um, and it'll be a couple of days before help can come. So what do you need in there to survive and be resilient until help can come? Little did I know, I sort of almost jinxed them because over the summer, I don't know if you yet heard about mm -hmm. the fires we've had here no, in Australia. Yes. Really catastrophic and spectacular. So they certainly can relate to, to the skills that they will need to be resilient. We, we had the fires, then we've had floods, we've had some super storms. So there are incredible uh, extreme climate events occurring um, that they need to be resilient and have skills to survive and that translates to when they if they go into a space career Because the same thing will be required of them if they go into space. They will need to have engineering and STEM skills Absolutely, uh, they will need to have uh, psychological resilience so um, Yeah, all these skills transfer they don't need to worry about taking a space career and wondering whether the space career will exist in 20 years time because these, these skills are transferable here or there. Um, that, um, I am actually very proud of that because it'll be the school's girls' high school this year. And then we've got interest from a boys' high school. And then we have what's called a selective school here in Australia. So they, we've got public education, but then if you're very gifted and talented, they have special schools which accommodate people who have um, low socioeconomic conditions, but have very bright children. So to encourage them to, to aspire higher, um, and that's co-ed. So mm -hmm. we will try, uh, next year have the boys high school and this um, mixed gender um, operation, and that will allow us to compare the 
project management and collaboration skills and the dynamics of girls managing this project, boys managing the project, or them collaborating, boys and girls together collaborating, and see what differences occur because of that, and, and see how we're getting, it would be very nice if we can do it longitudinally and look at it from year to year and see how relationships and dynamics between girls and boys are changing. Because at the moment we have got a fading in high school of girls dropping out of the sciences and STEM and engineering. And whether that's um, gender perpetrated or, or not, I'm not too sure. I know that I asked my son and my daughter-in-law to interview some of the people from the local chamber of commerce and was quite surprised at the number of members who saw their daughters being nurses or teachers. So there is a um, cultural problem still sticking with parents having very restricted visions of what girls can do and what boys can do. Hmm. So I, I would like to try and break that, that cycle because with new technologies and, and, and robotics and the like, that old uh, problem of, of different physiologies and strengths falls right. by the way because there's machines to do a lot of that stuff and it's about the brain power, not the physical power. Um, but that hopefully will feed into, we have a thing here in Australia, I don't know if you have it in America, CRC, it's a um, centre for collaborative research, uh, it's, it's industry driven, um, but the RMIT University in Melbourne has been organising that with uh, Swinburne and some other universities, uh, Lendlease, which is a huge property developer, um, uh, who else is there? So it's construction Archistar. They're, they're a um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, community urban planning uh, program. Mm. So uh, if we are talking about building the bigger habitat, so I've got the resilient shelter with the high schools, then uh, the CRC, we are looking at working with the mining company, uh, Glencore or uh, Rio Tinto, or one of the, the big mining companies here, Borrell is another one, uh, using this uh, retired uh, open cut mine or quarry and, and building a, a community in that facility uh, using all, all the uh, different technologies uh, and anticipating how all of the players will interact because that, that will be where the problem is. You, you, in space, you can't afford to have cars colliding or people mm. fighting because you're coming from uh, different uh, cultures and different mindsets and competing for resources uh, and, and power struggles. So um, in, in this um, uh, resilient shelter community, uh, you, you would have um, aged care, um, older people because of the health problems, when you go into space, um, uh, you, you, uh, it accelerates your aging process. So if we can um, create this community um, and, and have it actually as a, a viable um, business proposition. So it's not just a research hole in the ground where we're, we're building a space community. Um, you know, there, there has to be a financial reason for doing it. And the reality is we do need housing for aged care. We need to do research on um, what kind of services we provide them. But when we go into space, we will need the same sort of facilities. So this CRC that I've proposed will use this um, crater to build a retirement village essentially, and a space tourism accommodation, as well as research. 
and education. So you would have all of those players who would be living and working together up there, also um, being able to test out how they collaborate and, and live together down here first. Okay. Um, and initially, Janine, how many people are we looking at? In the, in the hundreds. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's not a small, uh, well, the Open Cup Mine, for instance, in the Hunter region of Glencore's Open Cup Mine, you could easily put probably five or, five or 600 homes in that site. Okay. Um, the original site I would prefer to use, though, is um, a place called Cobar. It has a huge Open Cup Mine, which has got a, now an underground mine coming so when you go down it's like a huge dish and when you get down to the bottom it actually goes now deep underground because uh, that area has rare earth metals mm. and uh, the rare earths are very much needed for electronics mm -hmm. and when you go into space um, uh, the electronics are very susceptible to um, radioactive uh, deterioration so you would want to be able to very quickly be able to mine so that you can process materials to repair and maintain your electronics and your, your machinery. Um, so that site would actually be preferable in terms of a, a more realistic. Um, when we go to the moon, I'm sure that the site we will choose will be somewhere close to where there's a mining uh, potential mm -hmm. for um, sustained um, um, habitation up there. Right. So, uh, but of course, one close to the city here also uh, makes it more financially viable. So that if they do one here, they can test. Uh, so, so the Hunter region, Newcastle, it's the third biggest city here in New, in New South Wales. So you would have a demand for people to actually live and use that facility. Whereas Cobar, we are talking about remote mm. central New South Wales. Um, you're not as likely to have uh, be able to sell that at, you know and, and get a return on your investment the costs would not be covered as easily right so something closer to the city right now um, i mean let's, let's look let's at the ec economics here of yeah. it uh so, so you want um elder care some research a little tourism of you know come and see what it's like to to live in this how isolated mining accommodation accommodation for right. the miners as well yeah. okay how isolated do you plan on it? I mean, artificially isolated if it's near a city. Um, we don't, how are they going to get food? Is that going to be meals ready to eat shipped in? or are they Well, no, the whole point is that, um, they, that uh, circular economy lifestyles need to be developed. And so you would build this with the thought that it has to be designed for, for solar uh, and for it's very unpopular here in New South Wales, in Australia, but nuclear is a clear um, power source that one has to consider. I mean, once you get into space, the, the cosmic radiation situation uh, takes some of that fear of radioactivity out of play. Um, but the reality is on the moon and Mars, dust is a major right. problem. Right. So this discussion of solar becomes mute, you know. Um, the, the solar power becomes a bit of a problem uh, unless you can run around with a fair dust and keep swiping all the dust off all those solar panels. The maintenance on that um, means that nuclear would be a more viable option for them. Okay. So how about I, I would like to see them, you know, experiment with power source, uh, food production, um, uh, yeah, general lifestyle containment. Uh, mm -hmm. 
the reason, like I said, uh, the other thing is the health, the long-term health of space travellers. It really needs to be considered. Mm. So I would like to see people, for instance, who are blind, uh, because one of the first things that, uh, one of the most vulnerable parts of our body are our eyes. And as you saw from reports, the, the astronaut who spent 12 months up there, I'm sorry that I've forgotten his name, but he had clouding of the cornea, burning out of the retina. So long term, that is a real problem. And I think they need to consider um, haptic navigation of the facility. So you would want to have blind people come and stay so that they could advise how best to design and build the, the um, uh, habitat, um, anticipating perhaps vision problems. Uh, because of, um, you know, microgravity causes uh, bone density problems and then mobility problems, arthritic type conditions. So you would probably want to pe see people who have mobility problems staying and advising about mm. how best to design um, to facilitate mobility problems as well. Okay, so, you're uh, addressing some issues here that I, I don't think get talked about a lot or thought about that often. Like you say, yeah. I, I, I think I understand better now um, what you meant about the concentration on getting there and then yeah. maybe a little bit of setup after as opposed to the long-term, well, how are people going to long -term live? Long-term health, so there's a personal. Right. Personal connection. <laughs> there's a personal reason why. Yeah, and you certainly would want to uh, do something about people getting angry quickly in space if, if possible. Well, exactly. Know that, exactly. Yeah. How about the psychology of living underground in, in what some people might think is claustrophobic space? Uh, well, you asked me about my joining the yeah. Space Industry Association yeah. and, and I didn't find that, I mean, it was, they're a great group of people, but they are mostly the people who are in that first tranche of mm -hmm. being, you know, astronomers or satellite guys and communication guys. Um, what I found was that then I made a connection because uh, the, these habitats will be contained biospheres mm -hmm. um, and submarines are the closest analogy to that. So I joined the Australian Defence Industry Network and I have mm -hmm. found that infinitely more useful. Okay. Um, I couldn't, I went to the big naval conference here in Sydney um, last month. Cannot speak highly enough of how impressed I was. Mm -hmm. Um, they've, um, I was expecting to be mostly men. I was staggered at the number of women, uh, that there is a real um, gender shift within the defence force. And I met some female submariners um, who yeah. are very impressive. Uh, they have a new, and so they have a lot of protocols. So there's no use reinventing the wheel. The Navy and submariners have already done a lot of the work because a spaceship is not that different to a, a submarine. Mm -hmm. You're in these tight confined spaces. Um, they have strategies involved. They have, you know, ways to store things. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you go into a submarine. We have right. one here in Sydney Harbour, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit tight because I'm a big girl. <laughs> but anyway, you would not want to be a big person. Yeah. And it's surrounded things. by a hostile environment that is trying to kill you. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> But the one, like the impressive technology that's coming, uh, this uh, new uh, micro, um, uh, uh, medical biochemical uh, coating that they're putting on the inside of, of submarines, because one of the biggest problems is you've got this air that can't be freshened for a long period of time and everyone's breathing and coughing and whatever. Uh, so infections and microorganisms are a real problem in mm. this environment. Um, and they've developed this um, uh, biological coating 
on the inside of submarines, which absorbs a lot of that uh, microorganism. And they are now using those on the lining of uh, airliners as well, mm. because on an, an airplane, you have the same problem that you're, you've got people sitting for many hours, you know, with pretty uh, horrible air condition, air, air circumstances. So, um, uh, a lot of that psychological and physical uh, development has been done already. But to be fair, we are talking about people in the military who are used to very disciplined, structural, hierarchical um, uh, social constructs. So the culture is there to accommodate that as well. When we start going to space, we're going to have space tourists. Right. And with all due respect, a lot of people at first who are going to go to space are going to have money. They're going to be what we would call alpha types. So um, squashing them, then they're used to luxury or, you know, being reasonably comfortable. Uh, they're very strong personalities. It will be very interesting to see how the astronauts who are more like a defense uh, a hierarchical uh, institution deal with these uh, tourists who are going to be a little bit harder to control um right. and i think what one the smart thing to do would be don't fight it know what you're dealing with and use it i would say that um, the smart thing would be to say to those um space tra travelers especially the first ones can you participate and give us feedback hmm. so use them keep them having them occupy them with journaling what they're experiencing how they think their experience could be improved um, what they think of the interaction with their other, they're used to dealing with other big business people and the like as well. Mm -hmm. So they could give great insight into how you handle a group of alpha personalities all huh. together. Um, uh, you, you would you would have them actually participating in the solution, um, I, and and psychologically, I think that would be very beneficial to them uh, to to be able to journal and to be able to record. The other obvious thing is to use virtual reality or augmented reality and just distract them at times. Um, and then, well, the other thing was just uh, involve them in negotiations. They have uh, minimum requirements for survival, but then they would all have a little bit of luxury built into to their space travel. So allow them to maybe negotiate. <laughs> Let okay. them wheel and deal while they're up there. Yeah, you've got me thinking about these different groups of people. Uh, I, mean, if you, I don't know if this is real or not, but there's a kind of a meme that goes around about comments on uh, traveler sites, websites where people who go to holiday destinations complain about the craziest things like, oh my gosh, I went to India and there was so much Indian food. Why is there so much Indian food? And it's, <laughs> right? And you just you slap your head and go, oh my gosh, you're crazy. Uh, and, and you think the more widespread space tourism becomes, the more regular people are going to get involved. And is this the kind of reaction that you're going to get, right? Where you've got a, a more military-minded staff, let's say, with the hierarchy and, okay, we understand that there are rules here or that, versus okay. really passengers who have maybe crazy expectations about what this is going to be like. And the secret would be to and enlist them into navigating and managing their own mm. uh, interactions. Mm -hmm, their get, own them to journal, get them to self-reflect, get them to reflect on their fellow passengers and go, okay, that guy's crazy. And, mm. oh, actually, I just did the same thing. Well, mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Mm. The, the best thing is to put a mirror up, to, to make them journal and, and make them reflect and, 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 and perhaps 
to, to navigate some kind of uh, code of conduct amongst fellow travellers about what you do and don't do, uh, what right. is acceptable and not acceptable. Um, I certainly, when I was a teacher, that was a common thing that, what, you know, disciplining students is a tough gig. Uh, but to be honest, the fellow students do a far better job. The, the teacher can actually just use the classroom peer pressure hmm. to, to, to na navigate some of the more difficult personalities usually. Yeah, it's a lot to be said for peer pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so long as it doesn't degenerate into bullying, that's it. you also still have to watch for that. Uh, mm -hmm. but one of the other things, sir, I went to Finland, I was a teacher. So <laughs> I'm coming from just... Um, I know that this interview is probably going to sound very uh, disconnected, but the reality is you do have to pull so many different dom domain knowledge sets together um, and consider how all these parts work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm a great adherent of, of systems theory. I, I, I really, I, um, I really think that it's a, a great way of, of looking at how the world organizes and, and how, how you have small subsystems and larger systems all interconnecting right well as a generalist myself I, yeah you've got me thinking about some different issues here other than the typical technological problem solution kind of pattern that we see uh, and thinking more long term about what happens when we get larger groups of more regular not space people um, involved in space Right. And, and how are they going to react and, and psychologically, physically, what are the medium and long term effects going to be rather than, OK, we're sending a few uh, really smart, highly trained people to the moon to a pole crater to start setting up some living and mining operation there. Yeah, that's just very such different a than, yeah. OK, now we're going to send 50 space tourists who are. Uh, some billionaires, family and friends <laughs> around to, to look at that stuff and then come back uh, or, or stay out there for six months or something like that. And, have, uh, and there will be tears. <laughs> right, right. This is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech, and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company 
a space company. And that has gone on for a little while, six months, a year, something like that. And it is time, as uh, COVID has made it, to double down or get out. Those are pretty much the choices, right? It's time to invest further in a thing we already know, which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now. Uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or, or stop, just kill the project. And so the good news is, in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So. If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. You reminded me uh, the second part of my project with the local high school girls because I was shocked at the response at that Chamber of Commerce meeting. Hmm. I said to the girls, okay, Campbelltown was uh, developed 250 years ago. And when they first came, in-situ materials use was just the way, you know, they came with virtually mm -hmm. nothing on, on the ships. Right. So we have uh, homes here, which are called Wattle and Daub. Uh, it, Wattle is just a local shrub um, mm -hmm. and, and Daub is just mud. So they made houses out of mud and, and the local vegetation. And when we go to Mars, we're going to make the homes out of regolith initially, mm -hmm. which is just a fancy word for the Mars mud. Mm -hmm. um, so I said to them, okay, uh, I want you to do a documentary about this area, how people arrived, how they used in situ materials, how the community developed in terms of um, transport, construction, uh, jobs, and you know, agriculture obviously was one of the first things, growing food, uh, but then other industries came. And then how was the vocation uh, training and education paralleling as, as the area developed? What happened with the education and socially, what happened in terms of the participation of women versus mm. men uh, and, and diversity uh, as immigrants came? And they, they can then put going to space in the same perspective because we have that starting point. Wattle and Daub buildings here, mm -hmm. regular buildings on Mars, the same kind of trajectory. How this area developed will just be a reflection of how um, communities will develop in space. Um, so if the girls do this um, uh, documentary, documentary well, they will get a very good perspective themselves on where their futures lie, what kind of education they, they would want to pursue, how they see themselves within the social structure of this community or a space community. Hmm. So and I think that that creative balance with the scientific construction of a resilient shelter needs to absolutely go hand in hand. So, mm -hmm. I said I was from the creative side and the business side, but right. I, I see that 
all of those need to be balanced with each other. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, very some very different uh, perspective here that, than I normally yeah. see it. For American audience members listening, uh, just go back to the colony times in America where there was no fancy manufacturing done on this continent. We had turners and joiners. We had guys who could run a lathe and do some basic carpentry and some joining. And it's nice stuff, but it's not the fine uh, manufacturing that you would get. Um, and so they had to wait for either the machinery to be shipped over or to be developed. Um, yeah, it could be a hundred years or 200 years before you get to that level now. Hopefully it would be faster, but uh, the first, first, second, third batch of people who are going to go to these distant places are not gonna have all these goodies. It's, it's yeah. gonna take a while, like you say, to set up. Well, it's so, where my art training comes into play too, because I believe the design, and that's why I really want to see the construction of the bigger community here, because mm -hmm. design is crucial. It, mm. It's your um, use of componentry and your fabrication, which um, needs to be extremely efficient. So instead of having everything custom made, which is very mm. common here, you know, you've got different screws are required and different uh, tools are required. Up in space, resources are going to be paramount and the resource use is going to be paramount. So there needs to be um, a real uh, uh, design focus on making right. sure that the screw you use on this uh, cupboard is the same that you use on this machine so that hmm. things are interchangeable uh, right. and you've got minimum demand on your resources initially. You, you can customise later on, but you need to be super smart about how you do things and how you... Uh, fabricate and build things initially. Right, and you're addressing some ideas that I think I certainly take for granted, like the uh, how, do, how will girls uh, visualize their spot in society and what education do they need to do yes. that. It's just something like I would never think about that um, yeah. on my own. So thank you for prompting <laughs> me to do that. You know, I used to, like in my own case, I just went out and I went to college or university and uh, you know ended up with a program that that uh, I liked that that was pretty much it right there was no real yeah. social planning involved or community like how am I going to fit in or something like that which I think is very important when there's not uh, millions of you running around and so there's going to be that diversity instead there's hundreds yeah. and so everybody really does have to have their spot well, you have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are. So when they build the resilience shelter, uh, I've set it up that uh, the program is that they do a self-assessment, Belbin and, 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 and Holbin and, and some of the others, they do a self-assessment of their strengths and weaknesses and about their possible roles in teams for collaboration. Because in project management, not everybody can be the project manager. Right. You, you need team participation mm. you need different strengths and weaknesses for the roles for everything to come together smoothly and efficiently um, i don't think i started looking at that stuff until my mid-20s though and i'd already been a plant manager by the time i was 25 26 so yeah. how 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 do you find their level of self-knowledge and their level of honesty their self-honesty in, in that assessment well, this is where um i have said to the teacher i, I really thank the science teacher at the local girls college for coming on board with the project because they're going to do the assessment at the beginning of the project how they see themselves what, okay. what they imagine are their strengths and weaknesses yeah. and then after the project being honest mm -hmm. <laughs> <we're home. laughs> and then going 
yeah, maybe I wasn't as strong at that as I thought I was okay. because this project will certainly bring it out. Yeah. Um, they will be able to see, oh, well, no, but there's other people I'm working with who are better suited to that, so maybe I should do this role. I think acceptance of who you are and what you are, mm. it, it's a, an ongoing life paradigm and, and certainly it's going to change as you educate and, and you have different life experiences. But I, I think it's always important to keep assessing who you are, what you are, and, and be comfortable with that so that you do have a better idea of where you're going. All right. Okay. And it sounds like you've got two timelines that you're working on for this. One is with the, the high school students, and then the other is uh, if you get buy-in from the, the, the query the owners and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so what does that look like? Uh, that is still... A work in progress. I will be going to the the Economist, uh, which is a, a magazine, uh, holding a business meeting. I think it's next week, actually. Uh, I'm not too sure of the date. Uh, where uh, various businesses, Rio Tinto and the like, will be gathering. Um, I'm also participating in a Future Minds program. Uh, once again, actually, really luckily, Rio Tinto will be there again. So I really networking is so important as you would know mm -hmm. in business and in anything so it's just a matter of, of I'm sure that once I can get one uh, mining company to actually commit then the rest will come because mm -hmm. they, they will be they're, they're a prime they're such a big right. player in the situation um, I, once, I had, you, once you get the okay to use the site then, then yes. what does the timeline look like to get to something where, okay, now we can have people living there and moving in? Well, it's, there's been so many NASA projects where they've designed habitats. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it really worries me when I see, especially a lot of universities, repeating stuff. And I think, well, mm -hmm. that's already out in the commercial ecosystem. Why are you still doing that? Why don't you take what's already existing and then go... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I, I'm one for efficiency. So, um, yeah, I, I would hope that the, the universities um, just take on board work that's already been done in terms of designing uh, uh, these habitats for NASA and for ESSA and the like, and just take that and run with it. Um, okay. Certainly there's been um, a lot of retirement villages being built, so we, we can do that. Uh, the other thing too is, of course, uh, we have a submarine program here in Australia, so a, a lot of the technology uh, and advice for that can also be just incorporated within, uh, I don't know, the Defence Departments. You would have to be a little bit careful with some of the IP, I would imagine. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Well, uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, connect with you, find out more, where should they go? What should they do? Um, Space Habitats, uh, I've, I've set up a website, but I'm finishing a Master of Politics at the moment. Um, so, uh, madly, I, I'm feeling, I finish in June, so I'm just getting the research paper done now. Uh, so I'm a very busy, busy, busy person because I'm, like I said, I also am with the National Space Association right. and women in business and, and so on. But um, the best would be Facebook, strangely enough. I have a... Um, Space Habitats Facebook site. Okay. So please feel free to contact me through the, the Space Habitats uh, uh, Facebook site and I would happily uh, have, a, have a chat with you. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Janine Kutsonen, founder of yeah. Space Habitats. Make sure I remember my pronunciation. <laughs> Thanks for being here. 
Oh, thanks. And, and sorry, I was uh, so disconnected. I'm very nervous. As this, many of your viewers will notice, this was my first podcast. So nerves got the better of me, I'm afraid. Oh, I but, think uh, it was fine. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You got me thinking, kind. like I said. So I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.